Simranjit Singh, who's written two books and is a deep thinker about all things religious pluralism, serves today as the executive director of the Religion and Society program at the Aspen Institute. But he got a start as a journalist. Even today, Simran still writes a monthly column for Religion News Service, and he contributes regularly to the Washington Post, CNN, and Time Magazine. His new book, The Light We Give, is one part autobiography, one part religious philosophical reflection on sick principles and what they mean in our times. If you like what you hear today, and you're an audible listener like me, perhaps you'll enjoy hearing Simran read his own book in his own words, nine hours worth, beginning with a fast-paced, engaging story of growing up in San Antonio. He's one of four energetic brothers, but also one of 30 million six in the world, born the same year that the government of India cracked down on tens of thousands of Sikh men and women in Punjab. Today, there are 500,000 Sikhs in the United States, but the religion overall is the world's fifth largest. In any event, by the time Simran finishes telling the tale of his turban coming off in a high school game-winning soccer header, or about his and his friends' most memorable rebuttals to vivid racist encounters on the street or at school, we're ready to listen to what six call seva, or selfless service, aimed at the world. Simran's book makes the case that many of these wisdom practices apply even and perhaps especially in polarized and politically toxic times. Joining Simran to discuss this new book is Professor Ari Goldman, a journalism legend and the author of four books, including the 1992 bestseller, The Search for God at Harvard. Ari was a 20-year religion writer at New York Times, and he's taught journalism since 1993. His courses today at Columbia University, including one where Simran is an annual guest lecturer, include a seminar on covering religion and another on the journalism of death and dying. He also teaches a course for New York Times journalists on covering the big city. And much like Simran, Professor Goldman still frequently writes pieces of his own for New York Times, for Washington Post, Salon, The Forward, and New York Jewish Week. A prolific journalist activist and a prolific journalist professor Enjoy the conversation. Hi. I'm really excited to talk about Simran's book. I've known Simran for several years at Columbia University, where we teach together. And uh, he's been a guest in my class, and I've been such a fan of his work this book surprised me. The Light We Give, How Sikh Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. Whenever I have a conversation with someone about Sikhism, they start with the five Ks. And you want to know what I know about Sikhism? Five things. But this is Sikh philosophy, and it blew me away. I had no idea that there was, there was more to it. So I'd really love to hear from Simran about how ritual practice, which is, I'm a little obsessed with ritual practice. That's what I write about and what I teach. What's the place of that within Sikhism? And how do the practices bring these ideas and, and, and philosophies to life? Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for your reflection. I mean, thank you. Thank you for reading the book, which is, which is a gift <laughs> in and of itself. I'm pleased that you're surprised because I, I have found in every conversation as it pertains to to sick teachings for some reason we end up focusing on identity and I, I think i think we can understand what that reason is 
the visible identity for six is unique uh, and it stands out. And so people notice it and want to know. But I think unlike so many other conversations about religion and about religious communities, we stay on the surface when it comes to sick experiences. And uh, and I think there's, I mean, there, there's clearly more to it than that, but I think it's also very limiting and, and in some ways uh, actually dehumanizing when we only focus on this is what these people look like. And so I, I, I appreciate your, your observation and, and your question. And this point about practice, which is something that features uh, all throughout the book, to me very much comes from this this concept in in Sikh philosophy, which is to say, you can you can believe anything, you can know everything. I mean, you can have all the knowledge and information and ideas in the world, but if they're not applied in your life, then what's the point? Like, what difference does it make if you if you have all this knowledge? What what good are you doing for yourself and also for the world around you? And that second piece of it is very interesting to me too, because there is there's a really important anecdote in, in Sikh philosophy that goes back to the founder, Guru Nanak, who meets with some sadhus, some, some really spiritually accomplished people. And Guru Nanak sits with them. He shares his respect for their spiritual accomplishment. And then, and then he kind of calls them out and says, who cares? Like, good for you. And also, and also who cares? What difference are you making in this world? And so it's that impulse that I think is so much at the core of Sikh practice, which is to say, good for you. Like you have the ideas or the intellect or the information or whatever it is. Now now do something about it. And I think in biblical traditions we might we might say faith without works is dead. I mean it's it's kind of the same idea, right? Like you have you have this inside of you, now now bring it outward and, and carry it through into the world. And so yeah, it's it's something that I've I've really loved about Sikh philosophy. Connect, though, the practice with these ideas. That was the missing piece for me. So, like, how does carrying a sword or covering your hair or growing your hair or, um, you know, having the comb, how does that remind you of these philosophies or, or does it? And, and what do you want to share with the world? Because you're not asking me to grow my hair, right? You're asking me to see the world in a certain way. So I don't know if that's a, f- a fair question, but... That's a great question. What's the connective tissue here? This is a question I asked myself for a long time over the years. And, and I share this in the book that even when there are conversations at the superficial level about sick identity, the explanations that I would hear growing up, they didn't really resonate with me. And I, I, I couldn't explain why. And to some extent, the challenge was that they felt true but they weren't sufficient. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, for example, we talk about the kirpan, the sword that we wear as a reminder of our responsibility to stand up for justice, to stand up for the most vulnerable, to be assertive in, in times of need. And I believe all those things. And, and I, I believe that the kirpan, I mean, the kirpan does that for me. But part of the challenge was when somebody would say, well, why don't you just if it's a symbol, why don't you replace it with a number, another symbol? And it can serve the same function. And, I, and I, that helped me realize, well, actually, these items are not just about their symbolic value. There's something, there's something more going on here. And, and it was through that that I started to recognize that there was something 
let me say it this way. My bias going in was that if something could not be empirically explained, then there was something wrong with it. And I, I didn't realize that this is the Western coding, right? Like in, in a post-enlightenment context, everything has to have a single answer or explanation. And if it's not scientific, then it's irrational and therefore uncivilized and backwards. And I mean, this was my bias. This is how I was operating in my brain where like, there has to be some functional explanation, something instrumental about this. And it was only through recognizing that this was a bias that I was actually able to start overcoming it and accepting that actually the real reason why these articles of faith feel so personal to me was because they were about faith and about relationship. And that was okay. Like I didn't have to be embarrassed by that. And there, there was, there's nothing insufficient about faith that in, in, in a context where it's often <laughs> denigrated or shameful or makes you feel like you're not being smart enough or intellectual enough. Like it's, it's, yeah, it, it was, it was a very strange experience to go through that. I guess the one additional piece that I would say here is it was in graduate school when I encountered the teachings of Foucault, the philosophy of um, Michel Foucault. And, and it was his idea of the technologies of the self that actually helped me understand for the first time what I had always felt the meaning of the Sikh identity was. And, and in shorthand, and you know, I write about this more in the book, but in shorthand, it was his concept that disciplinary practice of any kind is not just for the sake of the discipline itself, but it's for ethical formation and to make you stronger internally. And I had, I had experienced that growing up. And I knew when I read this idea of his, it really resonated because I, I, I sort of, I knew it firsthand. I grew up with it. And so that to me was really the, what, what bridged the gap that you're talking about here. The ethical formation, like for me as a Jew, is I could say, keep kosher because it makes you more sensitive to living things and to animals. You know, I could say, keep the Sabbath because we all need to take a break. We need to rest. Yet there are things that don't make any sense, right? There are a lot of things, you know, why shouldn't I mix milk and meat? I mean, there's nothing wrong, you know, like logically with that. But yet that's a religious practice that may not have a reason. Maybe it once did but I continue to try to learn from it. So, I, I mean, I suppose some of your practices don't always track exactly with the ethical principles, but they're part of your identity. Is that how you see it? And also, what, what do you want to share? I mean, this light is what you want to share, right? The light that you, that, that you so beautifully describe. What do you want people to take away from, from your book? Yeah, well, to to go back to your to your first question and point, I, I think that's exactly how I would describe it. Looking at someone from the outside, it's really easy to judge what they do uh, and call it meaningless. You could easily, especially when it comes to religion, and say, "Oh, well, they're doing this. They're doing this action that is completely empty and arbitrary. And so, what what purpose could that possibly serve?" oh, that must be an empty ritual. And I'm therefore going to judge it and say, that's, that's a waste of time. That's not godliness, or that's not any sort of spiritual practice, right? It's empty. It's useless. And, and so it's so easy to discard and judge what other people are doing. And I think we, like as a society, I mean, let's get away from religion even for a moment. 
I mean, we, we do this constantly as a society. What I learned from Foucault and, and through my own life is actually for the people who are doing it, there, there might be more that's happening there than you realize. And it's, you know, some of that is on the basis of, well, what is their subjective understanding? What, what gives it meaning for them? And, and it, might, it might be very different than what you're perceiving. And then also then this layer of disciplinary practice, which is to say, like, in some cases, it doesn't even actually matter what they're doing. The fact that they're doing something with consistency is creating internal fortitude. And I, I think back to my days playing high school soccer and our coach would, I mean, it seems so random what he would have us do in terms of fitness. And he would say, go run 10 of these sprints and then go run these two miles. And I mean, in his head, I don't think he necessarily had a clear plan of what each of those different exercises was doing for us. But all of them together was was creating a, an overall sense of fitness, right, in, in, in our bodies. And so I think there's something really interesting about that. And, you know, part of what I love about this idea is that it runs so counter to what we are seeing as it comes to religion and spirituality in our society today, right? Like this, this sort of a la carte approach to, to religion today and spirituality. And, you know, I have nothing against it, but one observation uh, is that so often we choose what we like and what's comfortable and the discipline part is not that comfortable. And so what is it that we are finding within our lives that is giving us that daily consistent practice that shapes our ethical fortitude, right? It's not to say we don't have ethics or morals, but how have we practiced living those out? I'm not sure. And I think that might be at least in part be contributing to, to where we are as a society today. What are the takeaways for your readers? Yeah. I mean, when I first started envisioning this book, when I was younger, the real takeaway was very simple. And that was, let me, let me introduce you to your sick neighbors. And this is the world's fifth largest religion. Most Americans don't know who we are. That ignorance leads to real violent consequences for people, not just in this community, but but outside of it too. And so that was animating my desire to write this book initially. But over time, I think that's shifted a bit. And, you know, that that goal is still there. And it's underneath the book and, and it's written in that way. I think especially, you know, I started writing this book in 2016. And at the time, I looked around and just saw how outraged and angry and frustrated people were. And in the course of writing this book, part of me was thinking and expecting and hoping that the difficulties that we faced as a society would slow down. And they didn't. (laughs) It felt like everything was just every single day was brutal. I mean, it was so intense and people were just more and more upset. And so part of the question for me became, what might we be able to access in terms of wisdom that can help us find peace and calm, even when the world is constantly and consistently difficult? And I think that's that's a question for spiritual traditions, right? This is what we learn, that life is difficult, challenges come your way, And there is a way to find for each of us some level of equanimity within our daily lives. And so that's that's to me more than anything else is what I hope to share in this book. I loved that the the biography portion that you share, you know, being born the same year that this 
Indian government killed tens of thousands of, of Sikhs coming to America, your father's story, moving to San Antonio, growing up in suburban life, playing sports, drawing people into the exchanges on the, the soccer field with, with people. The famous header that you had, Simran, in San Antonio, if I recall, Madison High School, and your turban comes off. And Yes, yeah. So, uh, you know, you're pulling people into your story, and we know you by the time that you talk about generosity and the disciplines like this uh, 100-year-old marathon runner. You know, we know it through your eyes by that point, which adds a lot and pulls us into, uh, is it Seva that you describe, Seva? That's right. So what about the, the norms around journalism? Ari, you teach and you've taught together. Simran, you're now running this program at Aspen around inclusive religion. You know, you say, I think it's in chapter 44, a little bit about how we might look for more positive stories instead of being dominated by the fearful tales and negativity. You know, what norms, what practices might you recommend for how we think about the application of sick wisdom to the news we read and the news some of us write? Yeah, there's... there's... I think many, many lessons for, for each of us that we can find through Sikh philosophy. And, and some of it, I think, is unique. And some of it, I think, is essentially a reminder for what it takes to draw out the best in ourselves. And, you know, one, one aspect that I've been thinking about quite a bit recently, and this, you know, sort of, it speaks to the division and the polarization today and what I have learned it takes to get out of that. And there are two aspects to me that feel crucial and missing in our society today. And the first, the first is humility, and the second is empathy. And I think the two go hand in hand. And what I mean by humility here is opening ourselves up within in such a way that we are able to recognize our own imperfections. Part of our struggle as a society today is it has become so easy and so expected that we are constantly looking at other people's mistakes and pointing our fingers at them and saying, you're doing this wrong and you're doing this wrong. And and we are rewarded for that. We're incentivized. Uh, we get social points for calling people out and people give us respect because they say, oh, by doing that, you are demonstrating that you're a good person. But the challenge is, you know, we do need to hold injustice and count accountable, but what we're failing to do is looking within ourselves and understanding that we carry these same assumptions too. And we have the, these same problems baked inside of us as well. And so the, the practice, and I, I think spiritual traditions writ large, they give us an opportunity to practice introspection, to look inside of ourselves and say, Hey, you know what, how can I improve? How can I get better? And that's not a question we're asking ourselves individually as a society. That, to me, would change how we approach how we see one another, whether it's through the stories that we read or the encounters that we have on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and the second piece of that, which, which I think is tied right in, is empathy. And I think part of what we learn, both through journalism, and I, I learned this through writing this book, that we really create change when we can find a point of connection. Information doesn't change people. Statistics, facts, I mean, we, we have all that. It's not doing what we thought it might do in terms of creating connection. And so recognizing the power of story to create these points of connection, especially for those like my own community 
who have been left out of narratives or who have been overly dehumanized. And part of this is, is a recognizing the imbalance of who has not been given the opportunity to be connected with. And part of this is recognizing our own responsibility to create these points of connection as, as a way of creating social change. I'll just pick up on what Josh said about empathy. You can, or about journalistic practice, you can not understand people unless you hear their story. You can begin to be empathetic when you read a book like Simran's and you have a sense of what it's like to be that child who is mocked or teased or bullied because of religious practice. And when you begin to see what that life is like and the responses and the, the hurts, you begin to identify with the person because we're all, we're all vul- vulnerable in that way. So uh, I, I think a big contribution of the book is knowing what it's like to grow up in this community and imagining living next door to Simran or going to school with him. And how would I react or how could I better move in the world? Because I want to be treated like that, you know, with regard to my own religious life and practice. I want people to be empathetic to what I'm going through, which may be why I wrote a book, you know, that is very much a spiritual autobiography as well, because I wanted to say, well, this is what it's like to grow up an Orthodox Jew. And you may be threatened by that or not understand it or think it's strange or think it's backward, but let me tell you my story. So I I think these exercises are really important in reaching an understanding between people that otherwise doesn't exist. Can I ask if, if each of you think we're doing better or worse in that vein in the last 30 years, say? I mean, your book, The Search for God at Harvard, Ari, describes coming with deep roots and curiosity with an, a mindset toward exploration. What was it that the New York Times Book Review, how they put it? Is, po- is it possible to honor the truth of one's own religion while being genuinely open to others? It seems to me that if you're in New York City or if you're in Boston, you're going to have a lot more other faith traditions around. And if you're in San Antonio, where Simran grew up, you're not so much, you know? And so if you're in Wisconsin where this Oak Creek massacre that took place that Simran writes so eloquently about in the book, if you're there and it's 6 million people in the state and a quarter are Lutheran and a quarter are, a quarter are Catholic and most everybody's white except for in the two big cities, you know, it, you're not going to experience much religious diversity. Are we doing better today or have the last six years revealed that we aren't so much doing better today? Have we moved in a positive direction or, or not? I think Simran and I will have uh, common ground on this one. Uh, I'm, I think we're moving in the wrong direction. And if I could point a finger, it would be at the internet and about people, you know, exercising tribalism online and, you know, being siloed into their own lives and communities rather than using it as a way to get to know the other and get to be expansive. So um, I don't want to blame it solely on the, on, the, on the internet, but I think it has been misused and when it could have been a great tool for bringing us together. Instead, it separated us. Yeah, I mean, I, no, no, sur- no surprise that there's, there's agreement here. Ari and I agree on quite a bit, actually, outside of this conversation. One of the opportunities, I think, in terms of moving forward is 
generations today, in a way that we didn't growing up, generations today understand how different experiences are interconnected. And, and they talk about this as intersectionality. And this is, this is a, for many young people growing up now, in a, way, in a way that I would have never conceived of it, it's taken for granted, right? It's a given. It's just how they view the world. And there's something really powerful about that. And, and I think one of the missing pieces within this discourse and this worldview is that religion is out of that picture. There are a number of reasons for this. I, I understand a lot of them and, and see why people are reluctant about religion, are nervous about religion. But, but I think it's a big mistake to not bring what is so clearly a, an important driver of human behavior and identity in our world and say, okay, this is, this is also a piece of the puzzle that we're talking about here. And it doesn't have to be the entire puzzle and it doesn't have to be imposed on anyone, but it's, I mean, it's important for people. And so I, I agree. I, I agree that there is something very disconcerting about where we have gone, especially the last six years as a society and what's been revealed about the ugliness of, of religion, especially in America. But I also think there's an opportunity if we, if we can figure out how to make sure that religion and religious diversity doesn't get left behind. I really love the book, and I think it's important for people to read and to share. And getting to know Sikh philosophy was very valuable for me as a reader. There are echoes of both Christianity and Judaism in here that I wanted to raise with Simran. The um, idea of forgiveness, of loving your enemy, comes across very strongly within the stories that you tell. Um, that very poignant story about a student in um, San Antonio whose mother had a heart attack and you sent her flowers. And then another student said, wait a second, he's the one who's making trouble for you. He's the one who's, you know, reported you and, uh, you know, has you on a certain like terror watch list because just because of who you are. And your response was, that, well, you know, I just have to do what's right. And that's what's, you know, the good thing. And sort of just sort of like that, that kind of giving and forgiveness was very, was very touching. But for me, it's echoes of, of what I've heard about Christian belief and practice. One of your principles of faith is about memory and remembering. And, you know, that's so important in Jewish life and Jewish practice, the idea of, of memory and keeping these stories and ideas alive. So I know you've taught world religion. So do you see a lot of overlap with other faiths? And I'll put it bluntly, like, so how, how are Sikhs different then? I love the question. You know, so it, it's funny to enjoy that question because in so many contexts, I get this question and I roll my eyes. And then when it, when it comes from you, it's, it, it's, it's coming from a different place, I understand. So it's, it's a much more provocative question, I think. So part of what I'm trying to do in this book, and, you know, this is, in some ways, this is the situation for religious minorities in any context, which is people ask me, well, how do you learn to live alongside religious difference? And when you're in the minority, you say, well, you don't have a choice, right? <laughs> you just have to. And, and it's, this is part of my, my training, too, as a scholar of religion. I didn't have the opportunity to only study my own tradition, and I, I studied many others. And what, what I've gained from that is 
the ability to speak to others in their own registers in ways that helps to create connection. And so the language of loving your neighbors or your enemies, the line I used before about faith without works is dead, it's these have been skills of translation that I've developed over time, just in terms of learning how to speak to my own audiences. Right now I teach Buddhist history at Union Seminary. And if I'm talking about the Sikh teaching on Ikwankar, I would talk about interdependence and codependent rising. And so to me, it's it's very much trying to remember that writing and educating is about service and meeting people where they are. And so that's that's really what I'm trying to do at the end of the day. Now, to your, to your question about, well, what what is it that distinguishes these traditions? I mean, I think everything and nothing, right? Like everything that is my experience is very particular. And the way that I would describe my experiences growing up in this country have very much to do with my being a Sikh. The way that I would describe, and as I do in the book, the way that I see the world because of what I've experienced is very much informed by Sikh philosophy. And what I also want to say here, and and the way that I want to write this book is to say, you don't have to be a Sikh in order to find happiness in your life. Like I, I, this is not a missionizing or or proselytizing effort for me, but it's really this, this deep belief that I have that the core principles that ground Sikh philosophy are in some ways unique, but are also universal and they are universally applicable and they go beyond particular frameworks of religious practice. And, and ultimately, I would say if you boil down the book into three words, it would be oneness, love, and service. And that's that's how I would describe Sikh teachings. And I think if you get, I don't know, maybe let's say you get 10, 10 people who identify spiritually in some way, and you share those three principles, I, I would say eight or nine of them would agree with you that like, yes, this is how I see the world. This is so, so that's what I mean by the universality of the teachings, even though they are particular within a certain framework. Can I just ask, picking up on Ari's question, yo, I think it was in that chapter about the Oak Creek Massacre that you described your own anger and, and feelings of, of, of burden, and then, you know, some particulars of how you wrestled with, with that moment. You know, seven fellow sick people were, were killed by a, by, a, by a shooter. You talked about how you feel and, and how you see it, how you connect, and then you moved to forgiveness. And I, I, I don't know if either of you have seen the film Mass. Uh, the re- recent movie Mass, it's like one conversation that takes place in an Episcopal church in, in uh, Massachusetts, I think. It was recommended by Ryan Heath recently over in, in Europe. But it's a good film, and it's about forgiveness. And the main takeaway is that forgiveness is for, you know, the giver, not the recipient in large part. And And you talk about that also, I thought, so beautifully at the end of the book. I wonder if you could just maybe dilate on that a little bit. I think that the proverb was... Um, the giver keeps on giving while the takers get tired of taking. Why? Why does that happen? Or, or the, the giver and the receivers are mutual beneficiaries. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, you know, if, if you learned this lesson and felt you needed to forgive someone up there in Wisconsin, and it made you better to do that in your own thinking and your own gift to the world, why is forgiveness particularly important for the giver? How's that work for the, for the protagonist? The line that you that you quote is actually a line from Guru Nanak that I love. He says, de da, de land, de takvai, kai kai. He's saying the, the giver, referring to the divine, is constantly giving and, and we're just taking. 
we're constantly we're constantly taking in part what i experienced in response to this massacre in wisconsin was you know in some ways in some ways different from anything i had experienced before because there was real hurt you know it wasn't me personally i wasn't living there but it was a hate crime and he had intended to target our community and people told us we should forgive him and i was like he, this guy just killed a bunch of us out of hate he was a very open white supremacist and then he killed himself like what a coward he couldn't even face what he did and by the way he never apologized so how how can i forgive someone who doesn't apologize and i felt very strong about that for for quite some time and and a few weeks went by and i was still very upset and i started to realize that actually this guy this guy's dead he's gone and what is my anger going to do for him and then to counteract that what is what is my anger doing to me and it was very corrosive like i was very upset and then i started to realize that he had a power over me that was only inside of my own head and inside of my own heart that's when i started to realize that letting go of my anger for him i i still wouldn't even say that forgiveness is what i was doing like i i don't think i've forgiven him and i don't think i've forgotten him but it was really just this internal piece of being able to say this is not about you anymore and i'm i'm not going to let your anger control my life anymore and i that that experience was i mean it still took me quite some time to actually apply that within my life but that experience was was very liberating actually one story i love in the book is about the flower and the milk a glass being full and can you put anything else in it and the answer no it's full and then the guru adds a flower and it's a great lesson about human capacity and when we think we're we're full or we think we're we've given everything there's still more that you can do and you do that breathing exercise with a student you know take a breath and take another breath and take you know and breathe deeper that was a new way of looking at the world for me that I thought, you know, we can, we can practice in our daily life. Oh, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I, I felt it myself that it's just, it's just so easy to put limits and boundaries around what our potential is. And, you know, the teaching from our tradition is there is no boundary, there is no limit. And we can really, I mean, we are ultimately, if nothing else, we are, we are divine. That's, I mean, the teaching in, in Sikhi is, is that that's what light is, right? It's boundless. It, it crosses everything. And so I found immense value in, in going back to that teaching in, in times where I felt really restricted or constrained by the world around me. So can I press you on why not share? That is, why not share the practices and not just in just the philosophy? So, I mean, if it's, if it's a beautiful faith and if it's, you know, so enriching, why not convert? people or encourage people to become six. How do you, like, why do you, why do you go this far and say, look, I've got a great, great ideas I want to share with you. I've got great stories I want to share with you and not say, I've got a great way of life. Yeah. I mean, you know, part of it for me is, is this sincere belief. Um, and, and this comes from, from our tradition, uh, that there's no, there's no single path to happiness to enlightenment, to, to love, to w- whatever you want to call it. 
And that has come out historically from the time of our founders in really interesting ways where they, I mean, even within the sixth scripture, there are writings from other spiritual figures, from other spiritual walks of life, including Hindus and Muslims. And to me, that's a very clear signal of there is no exclusive claim to God. And anybody who tells you otherwise, I mean, they don't really know what love is. And so to me, part of what I want to do in this book, I mean, this sick philosophy is the one that I know and that I've grown up with and that I've come to love. And that's what I want to share. I've cherished it and I, I, I want it to be available to other people who are interested. But I don't want to, like, there, there is no desire within me to say you have to walk the same path as me. Actually, let me, let me share with you this line from, from the 10th Guru, Guru Gobind Singh. He says, Sach kaho sun leho sabej and prem kiyot in hebrabayo. He says, listen to me, everyone, I'm telling the truth. Anyone who loves, those are the ones who attain divinity. And so there's, there really isn't, I mean, in, in our tradition, this practice, this belief, this desire that you need to live the same way as me in order to be happy. It's something we've seen over and over again in, in any case historically where people have tried to live that way. It very quickly devolves into imposition and harm. And so to me, it's, it's, I want to share and I want to invite people in. And if they're interested in learning more, of course, I'm happy to share more. What I'm really hopeful is that I can share the core principles that have helped me find calm and peace in, in, in a world that feels very dark sometimes uh, and, and let that be a bomb for them in a way that doesn't force or, or require them to change their way of living otherwise. May I ask one of, of maybe it's of Ari, really, about this book, The Late Starters Orchestra, uh, which you wrote, I think your fourth book. Is it right that you play the cello? What, what role does aging and or music play in the path that Simran is shining light on here? Okay, well, I've written four books. Three of them are about religion, and then one is about music. The genre I really like is memoir. So I write books about a year in my life. I wrote a book about um, my, my year at Harvard Divinity School called The Search for God at Harvard. I wrote a book about St. Kaddish, the prayer for the dead for my father after he passed away. And it's about the experience of saying that prayer for a year. And the music book is about trying to play the cello and I, um, as I'm approaching a big birthday. I'll say what it is. My 60th birthday is coming and I've been toying with the cello and I sort of decide to take it seriously. So it's a, it's a, it's a memoir of sort of facing my limitations and pushing actually when, when you think the glass is full, there's only so much I could do, but no, I think I could finally play this instrument. And it's a story of coming to terms with limitations like physical and musical, and I'm never going to be great. I'm never going to be Casals or Rostropovich or Yo-Yo Ma, but I could be Ari Goldman and I could do my, my best and I could play my songs and I could find people to share that experience with. That's what that book is about. Well, you know, this is something that I'm, I'm reflecting on as, as we're in conversation with one another. And it, it, it draws from my own experience in, in a way that feels very clear to me over the years. And then, and then a, an observation that's a, a little bit more confessional. And that is, I found that even among those who are the most knowledgeable 
in the West about religion and religious diversity, uh, even in those contexts, people know very little about the Sikh tradition. And that has been true for me in, in circles of scholars and journalists and interfaith and, and so on. And so that's, I think that there's something really interesting here to me and, and that I felt for a long time, which is our religious literacy, even, even those of us who talk about cultural and religious literacy, it's not that strong. And, and my, my observation, turning it to myself for a moment, and, and this has part of been my experience in my friendship with Ari, is this is true for me as well. And, you know, I may have developed expertise in Hinduism and, and taught Buddhism and taught Islamic studies and, and these other, even then, I had all sorts of assumptions about Judaism and Jews that were really challenged through my friendship with, with Ari. And so there's something here in terms of what we can learn as journalists and writers and, and, and as scholars and as people about, again, going back to this point about humility, how far we really do have to go and, and how powerful just a single human connection can be for us. And the power of a particular, and as you said, journalism that actually gets out and tells particular specific stories in a place that, that draws you to what is happening. You journal, you've been teaching, what, since 19, is it 93, 92? Ari, do you have any last word to journalists who might be listening to this, to this conversation? Um, yes. Uh, I love journalism because it gives you a passport to the world. It lets you pry into different disciplines, different places, you have, um, it's, a, it's, it's a great quest for knowledge that is, can be satisfied through journalism. And there's not a lot of good journalism about religion. And that's why I teach a whole course about it at Columbia, because I want journalists to go out in the world and to tell the religion story. I can do some of that alone, but I also bring in experts, you know, from in Christianity and Hinduism and Judaism and Sikhism. And Simran's been my partner in telling that story. I'll just give one very quick lesson, and that is we talk about empathy, and journalists are objective and prize objectivity. So I put those two ideas together and I, I teach something called empathetic objectivity, that you can describe someone else, but you have to do it with empathy. You have to reach out beyond yourself and your own experience and try to show what life and the world looks like through their eyes. Some people think journalism and religion are at loggerheads, but I think they can actually complement each other. And you can do great journalism about religion by using that tool of empathy. Faith Angle connects leading journalists to compelling religious ideas, including the many insights of minority faith traditions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>